Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to The Messy Truth. Today, I'm chatting to Carmen Winant. Carmen's expansive art practice uses text and image to question the patriarchal framework that surrounds women's bodies. She confronts unveils and reimagines in order to empower agency and liberation. Through the collection and aggregation of found imagery, she also questions the limitations of photography to transmute the human experience in all its complexity. We chat about her renowned project, My Birth, and her latest book, Notes on Fundamental Joy. There is so much that I love about her work, but I'm especially fascinated by how she seeks to collapse the space between process and final product. It's really messy. It's hard to disentangle how one, you know, encounters like the structures that inform one's life. And so it's absolutely true that my mother was and is a profound feminist and has been for, you know, many decades since her own early life. And so that seeped into my consciousness and the consciousness of my siblings from quite early um, so I guess the short answer is yes, but I think if she was a part of this conversation too, she would say that, you know, feminism is sort of a much broader network than, you know, than one person or one mentor that it, you know, that it comes in, you know, it comes into someone's body and into their soul through, um, through lots of different avenues. Yeah. I really love and admire how you talk about feminism not being an ideology that we subscribe to but it is actually within us and we live it and we breathe it and it's more of an embodiment movement right I mean I want to give credit where credit is due that is it's an idea that I learned and certainly identified with from you know from writers and thinkers like Bell Hooks and Sarah Ahmed both of whom are you know very much alive and, and, you know, vivid and working and writing today. And both of them write um, quite poignantly, as you've pointed out, about the ways in which feminism is sort of more than an idea on paper, more than something we learn about, you know, in the academy and sort of the ivory tower. In fact, feminism at its most powerful is this thing that, um, as you say, that we embody that we practice, that we do sort of around the kitchen table that doesn't just resemble our lives or describe our lives, but actually is our lives. Um, And as Sarah Ahmed writes, um, you know, a movement is something that moves us. And, you know, and so I I think about that quite often in terms of, you know, what it it means to practice feminism and and sort of not, not simply describe it or animate it, but actually, as you say, be inside of it. And it's such a core part of not just your life, but your art practice as well, right? Right. You know, I was recently doing an interview and somebody said to me, I'm trying to remember their exact words. It was something like, um, you know, talk about feminism as a theme in your work. And I thought, 
and said something to this effect. Like it's actually, it's it, it's a sort of inverted calculus. If anything, I think of myself as a feminist for whom art making is a sort of a channel. It's a way to express and occupy my feminism. Um, and of course, there are many ways to do that. And we see that with activists, with writers, with academics, there are many, many channels. And when did you first encounter images? Have you kind of always had an impulse to work with images or be surrounded by images? Yes. I just assume that everybody did. When I was, um, I guess, like a pre-teenager growing up in my Philadelphia house, I had a real, I lived with a real sort of excess of kind of teenage images, you know, to the extent that a lot of people, of course, put, you know, like teenagers put posters on their wall. And like, I think about it as almost like a collage aesthetic, this innate collage aesthetic that we start to build out as teenagers, the way we kind of learn to visually network our lives, except mine was, I don't quite know how to describe it, maximalist. Um, what I would do is I would cover all of my walls so that you couldn't see the paint beneath. And then I would cover them again and cover them again. And so my mother, in fact, described when they moved out of that house, after I had already left for college, then they had to sort of pull that, that all of the, all of the um, images all came down in one piece, almost like an excavation wow. site, you know, that they could just like sort of peel it off and like, like layers of skin, you know, like four or five or six deep all came off all at once. And I think it took me a long time actually to circle back around to that or validate that way of seeing, which is not just to say that um, I wanted to like look at a lot of pictures all the time and look at pictures together, but I wanted in some way, and these, this is the thing that I think we can only kind of seize upon retroactively, I wanted to live inside of the pictures. I wanted them to sort of fully surround and engulf me. And it was really only in, when I was in my late 20s or my early 30s that I started to think about how I lived as a teenager and, you know, sort of what my, you know, let's call them like visual strategies of looking and thinking were. And uh, I want to say honoring that, but that's not the quite right word, you know, thinking about them as interesting and valid. Um, for so long, I pushed away that way of, con you know, contending with photographs. I went to college, I went to UCLA and I studied photography and I made my own pictures, you know, sort of capital P pictures in earnest. And I didn't think that serious artists dealt with, you know, found images. I didn't think that serious artists, you know, layered them all over the wall. I thought that that was something that teenagers did. You know, I thought that that was a naive way of working because I didn't see any examples of that. Or I thought that that was a crafty way of working. And I understood craftiness, um, you know, through my own sort of inculcated sexism as being something that like women did. And I didn't see women as, you know, I didn't see many precedents of sort of serious women artists, much less women artists who were dealing with in craft art. And so for all of those reasons, it took me a long time to circle back to, in a lot of ways, like my strategies as a teenager, which is why that's such a sensitive question, I think. I think for a lot of us, um, you know, this is the case. We have to learn and unlearn. Yeah, constantly. As I'm getting older, that sentiment just resonates on a daily basis. And it's quite traumatic in some ways to bounce between 
those times and those points where you did invalidate your actions and it's only with time that you can bring that validation to them but knowing that yeah you kind of went through these experiences for so long and kind of invalidated what was such a primary almost like intrinsic act to explore yourself and your in in my case your identity visually in your surroundings Absolutely. And it's interesting, again, as I think about it now backwards, I had to I had to work my way to it. I, as I said, I was making my own photographs for a long time using a four by five camera. And and then I eventually started making photographs of other photographs. And I did that for a long time. It was like this slow creep towards what I now recognize as the thing that I wanted to give myself permission to do. And for, for years, I did that. And then finally, a mentor of mine, a former professor, Kathy Opie, whom I worked with at UCLA, said to me, you know, quite bluntly, um, I, I think you just want to be dealing with this primary object. I don't think you actually need to be mediating it through the camera. This, too, is a photograph, right? And so... In some sense, I think I um, I was creeping towards it. In some sense, I think I needed somebody else to sort of come in from the outside and validate that, particularly a feminist artist that I did admire and look up to. And the same thing sort of happened, in fact, in discovering, uh, let's say, like, you know, sort of rediscovering working with photographs in the aggregate. Um, I did that for a long time, look, sort of looking at individual images or creating sort of small collages from found individual images. Um, and then I sort of slowly created this strategy of putting them all up on my studio wall so I could see them all at the same time um, so that I could access them so I could take them down one at a time to make these sort of much more smaller, discrete collages. And Again, sort of one day, I did that slowly, slowly, slowly. And one day I looked up and I saw thousands of pictures taped up to my studio wall, again, sort of resembling my high school bedroom. And I thought like, oh, shit, this this is the thing. <laughs> like I've been working sort of forwards and backwards at the same time. And, um, you know, I don't think I could have arrived at that at that overnight. Obviously, you know, it. Uh, I've developed since being a 15 year old or a 16 year old. Um, but I do think that like there is some circuitous, something circuitous about that. That's really interesting to me. And I totally agree is like, is very much about respecting the impulses of that younger person that I was. Those impulses were obviously like quite deep and, you know, and persist in me as a, you know, as a 36 year old. Yeah, it, it feels like and sounds like such an expansive way of working for you now. But I couldn't help but think it must take an enormous amount of research to search out this material that you work with. Indeed. <laughs> the research is really um, like 90% of the labor. I mean, I wow. say labor, but it's it's joyous labor. Um, there's lots of different ways of doing it. And I'm often asked this question, particularly when I speak to students, how do you, how do you find all of this material? And it's a really good question. And it took me years and years to figure out. I mean, I'm still figuring it out. That is in some sense what the research is, right? Like a process of figuring it out, the sort of unending process. Um, and it's an evolving process too. When I first started, um, I was very uh, sort of particular and demanding to myself and sort of my own standards that 
I always find the material in the world. So I would go to estate sales, garage sales, used bookstores, which of course there are fewer and fewer. Um, I was living in Maine during the summer during that time. And there would be um, Maine is sort of famous for these basically roadside book sales, people will kind of just like stack books literally on the side, you know, of, of um, kind of like highway adjacent or on these back roads. And you can stop and, and look through mildewed books and pay someone $5 for, you know, a stack of 50 books. So I was really particular about sort of having my body be in the world, always coming in contact with the books. Um, but other than that, not necessarily having like a criteria for a place I had to find them, just that, you know, that it had to be, I had to be the conduit. Um, of course, as I have had children, which is really the main variable, I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old. And so I can't do these big pilgrimages by myself anymore, you know, driving across the country or whatever the case is looking for books. Um, so now much it varies, but you know, more often than not, I'm buying books on the internet. And the way that I do that is still, um, it's still varied. It's still quite thorough. So oftentimes, um, you know, I'll find, say, if I find a photograph or a series of photographs that I like, and there's a particular, say, um, you know, photographer, photojournalist, I'll look into sort of, I'll try to research more into that strain. Or if there's a publisher, you know, and they've since they've been under since, you know, 1976. Um, but I can find someone who collects, you know, that particular set of published books, or, you know, if there's a particular movement that was documented over and over, right? So you get the gist, like that there's, there's actually non-arbitrary ways into the subject. So you mentioned briefly before a little bit about your studio practice. And I really love that you're a champion of kind of messiness and sweaty concepts and their role in kind of taking us to a greater place and how accidents and points of friction are a vital kind of conduit for creative work and I feel like we don't talk very much in photography about the physicality or in art making we don't talk that much about the physicality of the process and I really love how much you talk about that and you you talk about processing art and your creations kind of through your body and bringing your body in contact with the material as you kind of touched upon before I wondered if you could just share a little bit about why that's so vital for you there's a couple of ways I could answer that question. The first is to say, as a student, I, you know, I attended a lot of different artist lectures and sort of put myself, you know, in the audience as much as I could. And of course, so often what we see in that context is like a series of really resolved works, right, by photographers or otherwise in the Whitney or, you know, the Guggenheim or some like a blue chip commercial gallery space. And um, for me, there was like this enormous chasm between what I felt like was happening in my studio, even as a younger person at the time, which was sort of like quite um, messy in some ways, deliberately so in some ways, you know, uh, not quite as much. And then this like really kind of finished glossy uh, product. And so I, I became interested even at that age in like, what is the space between and how much is the thing that happens in the studio, the messiness, the sweatiness, um, as you said, the sort of the friction of my body coming in contact with the work, like how much can that um, 
be talked about, you know, in this context, in the context of the artist lecture, certainly, and also sort of how much can it be imbued into the work itself? I mean, I say that now, but I want to sort of make clear, too, that, you know, retro retroactively, I mean, I looked at that and I thought like, oh, no, I have to get the messiness out of my work. Like I, I was looking around and I saw this kind of slickness all around me. And I've already described sort of what my teenage room looked like. You've described what my studio looks like. I mean, even at the time, I could barely see the floor. I walked on the images. I cut them out and I didn't necessarily have a process of, you know, sort of organization after the fact, which was how I liked it. So it took me it took me some time. There wasn't so much clarity about that right away. It took me some time to feel as though, again, I mean, this is going to, this is sounding a bit, um, a bit maybe reiterative now, but to realize that that was serious, you know, that working that way was interesting and problematic and that I didn't necessarily have to keep a clean studio, or in fact, that keeping a clean studio was not in service of my practice. The hardest thing was probably starting to make work um, that moved in museum space or gallery space in the same way it did in the studio, which is to say that it sort of retained that same, what I think of as sort of like the energy or the heat or, or the vibration of the studio, um, which, you know, the tape, the sort of the frenzy of how the images appear together is all very true to how it lives in the studio. And so that was just a process. That was a process of feeling like I wanted to transmute it um, from one space to the other without much interference. And thinking of that as a political act, as a gendered act, certainly as an act of practicing my feminism. Um, and there's lots of, you know, there's lots of ways to talk about it. That's one way in, let's say. And it's something that I try to hold on to as my own practice evolves as something that's really, you know, a meaningful sort of strategy in its own right. I wasn't necessarily planning to ask you this, but in, in kind of, as you said, it was kind of reiterative, this idea of almost imposter syndrome in the, in, in the art space and not saying that you have that. I think it's something that we kind of all, you know, uh, it's something we're all fraught with all the time. Oh, completely. And, and, you know, I, I think of myself as having it sort of twice over um, and in related ways, both in how I work in the studio, which is how we've been describing, you know, what we've been, what we've been describing and accounting for. And also, um, let's say like the subject matter, which, you know, is so much revolving around women's lives and bodies and experiences. And oftentimes, um, you know, the the vulnerability of those bodies, the capability of those bodies. And so, for instance, in a project like my birth at MoMA, there was a sort of imposter feeling twice over. Um, again, this is all like inculcated and learned sexist values, but feeling like, first of all, can I tape up 2000 photographs of, you know, um, vaginas splayed open with bodies coming out of bodies and, you know, and fluid pouring out. And, and also could I like, could I do it in this, you know, in this messy uh, way that sort of emulates studio research. And those things are of course related to each other, but for that reason, two times over, I felt an immense vulnerability. I still feel it, um, you know, to sort of harken back to this idea of learning and unlearning you know, that that feels like a, a lifetime project. Have you got anywhere to feeling comfortable in the discomfort? I feel like that's constantly what I'm trying to do in life in every aspect. And I'm always <laughs> curious if other people are 
have managed to get to that place of comfort and discomfort, yeah. which I feel like is the ultimate kind of goal. Yes and no. I'm inching <laughs> towards it. I mean, to go back to that project as an example, I felt supremely scared and vulnerable. I was one of the last people to install in that show. And, you know, so many of the photographs that were around me as I was installing were, you know, these like big, beautiful, lush framed photographs. And um, I felt nervous. I felt really nervous putting that work up. And then this incredible thing happened, which is that people responded to it and were moved by it and sort of stayed with the trouble of that work. That was incredibly affirmative and emboldening. And then, of course, like things happen in your life, like whatever they are. For me, for instance, like being pregnant and having and giving birth, you know, and like I I pushed a human being two times over out of my body and, you know, uh, in the process, whatever happened, right? Like I, I, you know, I shit in front of people. I like all these things that you feel so scared about happening, right? Mm -hmm. um, that after you do it, this is not, I'm not describing anything new, but things happen in one's own life that embolden them and make them feel powerful and sort of complicate the terms of vulnerability, you know, and capability, as I said earlier. Um, and for me, just, you know, one of those things was was giving birth, which obviously informed that project. But I bring it up to say that, um, you know, there's, there's so many ways that we can feel affirmed to do what we do. And some of those come from the inside, you know, which is to say, you know, like, um, somebody like Kathy Opie telling me, you know, I see what you're doing and it's interesting and keep going. And some of them, I guess I might say, come from the double inside, which is, you know, these things that our bodies do in the world and the way in which, you know, they give up, that gives us power. And, you know, I try to pay attention to both. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up um, my birth because I really would love to get into that a little bit because a big part of your practice is this questioning and testing the limitations of the photographic medium. And you did that in my birth with such nuance and complexity. Um, but I'd love to start off by just asking you your thoughts on why we do conceal or reduce in some ways the ritual of birth in culture so vehemently. Mm, Jen, this is the million dollar question. <laughs> um, I've been asked versions of this question since that, you know, that piece uh, came into the world. It's difficult to talk about that without using birth innuendo since that piece itself yes. was conceived. Um, and I, I think that the answer is both sort of complicated and uncomplicated. You know, so many women's experiences are deemed unserious, um, unserious for critical study, for academic study, for creative study, right? Because, um, because they belong to the world of women. So what, and you name it, like masturbation, menstruation, menopause, um, you know, uh, women's work, birth. So this isn't a new idea. I mean, but it, it is worth pointing out that it feels radical for that reason. All of us are, needless to say, born in one way or another. Um, many of us have then sort of, you know, uh, participated in that system as, you know, of reproduction as parents. And so it doesn't, on some base level, like it really doesn't feel radical. Um, but of course, you ask the question, because it was shocking. It was shocking to see it, even for me in some ways, as I was installing it. Um, and, you know, it felt at once sort of tender and political. 
And so in that, that is in some ways, I think the uncomplicated part of this answer um, that women's experiences are deemed grotesque. They're, they're satirized. They're made into parodies, you know, of themselves. You know, so often we see like in popular media, the image, you know, the sort of the image of the woman who is like her water breaks. The next thing we know, she's like uh, punching her husband, screaming at her doctor, right? Like she is the butt of the joke. And that is deep. That is really sort of, at least in the culture in which I'm embedded, that is quite deep. Um, and so that to me felt like the uncomplicated part of the equation, which is, you know, like, how do I make in these invisible, quote unquote, um, unserious experiences, serious and visible? And maybe the more complicated part of that is like how to contend with experiences that are so um, immensely vulnerable and private for a lot of people. And, you know, that that's a more complicated <laughs> you know, unfolding. And, and there's been some ways I think that the project um, has moved people along those lines. I think there's some ways that people have felt put off by it. Um, and so, you know, I want to sort of be open and honest about that part of it. I too didn't necessarily feel like, oh, you know, the pictures that of my birth that my partner took of my births, you know, that I wanted to necessarily like share them widely or have them published in a book, you know, so I, I really sort of understand the ways in which we want to hold those close for ourselves as well. Yeah, it's such a incredibly evocative and deeply layered artwork. It almost feels reductive trying to break it down into parts. I think this always sounds like a kind of naff thing to say unless you've experienced childbirth, but I think the full gamut of emotions that you go through is like nothing else on earth. And so it does have so much complexity and it and it does have so many different energies and emotions and elements that we're both our most kind of almighty and our most like vulnerable at the same time. And it's yeah, I just um yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. I mean, it was really the impetus for it. The first time that I gave birth in 2016, it was a, you know, one of these like, you know, two and a half day births and um as many, you know, first births are quite long. And when it was over, I thought um <laughs> I don't know how to talk about this without sounding kind of hyperbolic, but I felt like whatever just happened has inexorably changed me. And I don't quite, it was so transformative. I didn't, I know it's quite different for different people and revelatory in different ways. But for me, I felt like the range of sensations was so enormous in the way that you're describing. And I needed to account for it in some way. And, you know, the tools at my disposal are art and writing. And that means not only making my own, but looking for other people's. And so sort of the, you know, as soon as I could, I started to research um, other contemporary art that dealt with the continuum of birth and was surprised at how hard it was to find. I mean, that's not to say that it didn't exist, but I, I had a much easier time, say, like locating photographs or works that contended with motherhood or parenthood or pregnancy. Um, but like there was almost this... Um, blind spot. It was like blink and you missed it moment, this sort of transformative moment where the baby exits the body in that process. And so the work was very much sort of grounded in that vacuum. In fact, around that time that I was researching, I, I was reading this interview with um, the American artist Merle Laterman Eucalyst, now lives in Israel. 
and she was very famous, of course, for her for her work maintenance art, and I think is a really incredible feminist pioneer. And she was describing in this interview how after she had her first child in 1968, I believe, or 1969, how she would sort of be you know wheeling her stroller around the neighborhood and people would stop her and ask her like, how, how are you? Or mostly how is the baby? You know, is baby sleeping? These questions we get. And she was shocked that nobody asked her about her birth. And she describes it as a kind of muteness, a kind of mutual muteness that nobody even had the language to know what to ask. And I was so struck by that. I remember reading those words and just weeping. I mean, I was, you know, hormonal and like leaking from every part of my body, but it resonated so deeply. I realized no one had asked me about my birth. And I also realized at the same moment that I probably hadn't asked other people about their births. And so that was like a real um, sort of conspicuous moment in which things started to pivot for me. And I started to think about um, how I could make a work that would be in service of that sort of reversing, um, you know, hundreds of years of muteness and sort of creating a kind of visual or, or sort of text, textual language. Yeah, I really love this dissonance in the work between how it talks about the experience of birth and the representation of birth in sort of a myriad of different ways. But one of the facets that I was really interested in is how you explore identity and kind of in, interrogating your source material in terms of who's represented, who authored it, who's it for, and, you know, you've talked before about, you know, there are very few women of colour, queer women in the piece. And I wondered how you felt about identity and those issues while you were making the work. Yeah, it's such a good question. And I might add also it was very difficult to find um, images of non-vaginal births. So in addition to it being almost, you know, all white women or say at least 80 percent white women or white, you know, passing women. And as you say, as many, you know, heterosexual couples it was quite difficult to find images of surgical birth and cesarean birth. Um, and that was something I think I was maybe naive in entering the process. Um, that was something that surprised me as I went. And I had to sort of wrestle with as I went. Oftentimes when, um, say, women of color appeared in the photographs, this is not exclusive, but oftentimes they were, it was as support staff. So um, uh, this, this sort of, let's say, parallel history around um, birth and the, you know, and sort of certain birth privileges and birth histories also started to surface. And it was something that um, was something that I had to contend with. Needless to say, it's complicated to contend with something via its absence. Um, And, you know, the way that I sort of wrestled with it and, and, I guess one strategy that I arrived at contending with it was to talk about it in every interview, to write about it in the book, to put it in the wall didactic at MoMA, to put it in the audio recording, you know, at the museum so that it wasn't sort of something that was left unspoken. And, you know, after the fact, to be totally honest, after the fact, um, I had, uh, you know, a series of conversations, one in particular with a friend who's a black midwife who introduced me to, you know, these other alternative histories of which I wasn't aware. Um, For instance, I was sort of aware in a cursory way of black midwives in the American South who sort of turned to educating themselves through midwifery practice because they didn't have access to the local hospitals. And so she was the one who said, actually, like, your research needs to go deeper. Um, And 
I think it's a little bit of both. I think that, um, I mean, absolutely. I think my research and an artist, you know, an artist who's functioning in this way, it's their responsibility, right? Because this is a question of, um, of representation as it always is when it comes to artwork that re- revolves around identity making. Um, and so I think it is absolutely my responsibility. I think I could have gone deeper in that project in the research that I did. And I also think that there's a kind of accounting to be done um, in how we talk about the work and in sort of the language that holds it up, be it, you know, the artist talk or the press release. Um, that is, uh, you know, that's where we can express these problems and this kind of authority, let's say, over, you know, remaking histories. Do you think of that work as ongoing? I know, I think MoMA acquired that piece, right? That's right. Is it, is it something that you would revisit and and work on some of the elements you've just discussed? Or is it very much kind of that work is finished and you've kind of moved on? That's a good question. You know, I've sort of secretly, I guess not so secretly because I'm talking about it, been continuing <laughs> to collect images of, um, I say labor and childbirth, because it is, I think, important as, as an adjacent point to express that it is the continuum, right? Not just sort of like mm-hmm. the moment that a body is coming out of a body, but the sort of this larger process that one undergoes. And it's become a kind of compulsion. Um, I've just like, I've probably, I don't even know, collected thousands, at least 1,500 more images, I would guess, since 2018. And in that sense, I suppose that the work remains ongoing in my own body and studio, you know, in practice. Um, But it has become important for me to sort of evolve the ways in which I think about, um, in which I think about, let's say, um, you know, motherhood, procreation, you know, labor and so forth as I myself sort of mature into different stages of, of being a parent, you know, of sort of, of beyond my own birth, um, you know, living with my children uh, and sort of navigating all of, the ta- all of those tasks at once. And so um, how can I say, I guess that work is always inside of me. It informs truly like it informs everything that I've made since, but I'm working if I can to sort of, you know, complicate its terms in relationship as we all do to, you know, like how my own life has evolved, particularly in relationship to my children as they age. You described the installation of the work earlier in terms of thousands of images being taped up with blue tape and it mimicking that studio energy and that studio heat. And I wondered before you installed, you talked about your own concerns about it, but while you were thinking about presenting the work in that way, did you anticipate how the audience might respond? And I mean that both emotionally but also physically in terms of the delicacy of images taped kind of loosely on the wall and what it would mean with if a group of visitors in the museum kind of walk past it together and kind of you know it it, essentially what I'm saying is it was a very living dynamic artwork and and you could have different experiences depending on the flow of people through the museum. Yeah, well, I want to give credit here to the curator, Lucy Gallen, who was just so sort of sensitive to the project from the beginning. I tried to talk her out of showing the work in this way and, you know, kind of trying to conceive of other ways to present it, you know, as discrete pieces. 
And she was really insistent that, yeah, oh, gently insistent, I should say, um, <laughs> that it live, you know, in this way. And it was her idea to have it in this sort of smaller gallery so that the work could be facing itself and one, one to sort of move in between and to sort of, you know, go way back to what I said at, at the top of this interview. One could sort of live inside of it. And it's a little bit difficult to describe, but there were two quite large galleries and the smaller gallery in between. So one sort of had to pass through it to move, you know, um, between the other two galleries. I really want to give credit to her because she she really sort of gently pushed on that. Um, once we started to install, I will say that the museum was a little bit nervous about hanging a work in that way. It flutters when people walk by. They were worried about people brushing past it by people, you know, um, ripping little images off of it Mm. and I had to assure them along with Lucy that you know I had installed a number of times in this way and I had found people to be enormously respectful to the work I'd never had an incident and the same held true at MoMA Um, I think I didn't expect to your actual question I don't think I expected people to stay with the work quite as long as they did um, in part because when I installed this way in the past, I had only installed on one wall. And so I think there was something about being able to be between or ricochet between the, you know, the two facing walls. Um, I was so consumed with collecting the images and researching the images and like thinking <laughs> about how they could configure that, to be honest, um, I think that I, I just, I didn't anticipate, um, I didn't anticipate this sounds, you know, sort of expected thing to say, but how people themselves would activate the work. And the few times that I did get to go back and kind of loiter in the space, I was just so amazed by how long people were willing to stay with it. You know, so often we have this, you know, um, unofficial protocol where we like in museum spaces where we stand in front of a piece for eight to 12 seconds and we move right or whatever. And um, I was just so moved by the way that people stayed with it and talked about it and the way that older women looked at it and the way that, you know, fathers explained it to their daughters and their, you know, and so on. Um, so that to me was, was the most meaningful aspect of it. And, and yeah, funnily enough, the thing that I had actually lost sight of in the making of the work. It's so funny, isn't it? Because, you know, the whole of, especially commercial image making, but image making on the whole is is constantly battling against this idea that we've seen everything and we can't produce anything new. But your work speaks to something that is an aspect of life, which is absolutely not new, but it's it's been hidden from view for so long that when we see it, it's so powerful. It hasn't perpetuated culture in the way that many other things have, as you described earlier. And you can totally understand why that would be incredibly powerful and surprising and terrifying and all of the emotions for museum goes to experience. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I was amazed um, by the ways in which, I mean, I heard from a lot of people on it, people I knew and people I didn't know. And, you know, the number of women who had given birth, who didn't know what it looked like to give birth, for instance, um, was, was quite staggering. So, in that sense, it was for everyone, including the people who had already, you know, undergone it. Yeah, absolutely. You're listening to The Messy Truth, conversations on photography. I'd love to talk about the book, My Birth, as well, which is kind of an extension of the project, but includes more personal photographs. 
How did it feel working with images of yourself and exploring these ideas in a different context? Well, just to be clear, the, um, the majority of the images in the book are of my mother, who is shown giving birth to my siblings and I. Um, there are three of us who were born at home across five years, and all of those births were documented. Um, wow. And so those photographs were, um, you know, sort of my mother generously allowed me to use those photographs in the book. And what I did um, was to sort of visually rhyme them with found images of women undergoing sort of similar similar postures and similar emissions. And as opposed to the installation, which was sort of explosive and had no sort of chronological emphasis in terms of, you know, that continuum, the birth, uh, excuse me, the book moved through, um, you know, moved through much more sequentially. So it started with images of women experiencing contractions, although you might not know it from the photograph, through sort of um, the process of early early labor and late labor and, um, you know, and a body, as we said, coming out of a body and then um, being, you know, being held to the body of the person who just pushed it out. And so in that sense, I had a quite different feel from the installation, but was very much a counterpart and was conceived at the same time. And text and language are an important part of your practice at large, but very critical elements within this book. And you begin by framing 54 questions about the experience of birth, things like, were you in control? Were you thirsty? How did it feel like to create life? And for me, these really spoke to different audiences. And it felt like they kind of exist to provoke society um, into a more active dialogue about birth. But they also felt very intimate in terms of you asking other birthing bodies about their experiences and kind of validating the multitude of ways that women experience this act, as well as you perhaps, and I'd love to hear your opinions on this, but speaking to yourself in terms of your own psychological experience of birth and that intensity and trauma that our biological programming kind of encourages us to forget. Right. (laughs) Even though we always carry it, it's always imprinted on us in some way, whether it's conscious or subconscious. And I guess my actual question is, I'm curious about the origin of your questioning and and how important the answers are to you, if they are indeed important. Yeah, I wrote that text before anything, um, before I started to put together the images um, for sort of either counterpart to the book or the installation. And you're right, I I wrote them down um, while I felt like I could still remember them, while the experience felt as fresh as possible with the understanding, um, right, that like the programming would shift or that I would become too fatigued or whatever the case was. And I was really thinking, again, about this interview, as I mentioned, that I read with Merle Laterman Eucles. In fact, that question, how how did it feel to create life that you mentioned comes from her? Um, That's the one question that comes from the outside and was her language. And again, I was thinking quite literally about about the muteness that she that she raised and about how there was actually it seemingly no language to, you know, to be shared, to be put in place, to be put forth. And I thought, I mean, this is quite blunt as an approach. I thought, like, what could that language be? What questions could be asked? And as someone who was so fresh from the experience myself four or five days out, I thought, like, who better to write these questions? And so I wrote them down in a flurry. I think I wrote something like, 
80 questions and we trimmed it down for the book and, and some are quite metaphysical and some are quite practical. And like, for example, I remember writing, uh, did you orgasm? Because I had been reading this book about orgasmic birth. And then I oh, wrote a film. <laughs> Have you seen the film? No, there's a film about orgasmic birth. There's a documentary about it. Yeah. Oh, I, wow. we, I need to I, watch it. <laughs> yeah, you really do. It's, it's mind blowing. It's my, I'll leave it at that, but it's yeah, my, you must okay. watch it. You'll love please, it. Please. Um, and, you know, to uh, write to this question, how did, how did it feel to, to create life? And so there's this sort of enormous range. And I've used those questions. I've used those questions for other people, you know, for friends who have given birth. Um, and it's been a kind of a meaningful and in some sense practical roadmap for me. And it's something that I wanted to sort of introduce the book with to sort of set out and establish the terms that this would be a book in some ways of teaching and learning and sharing. I don't mean for this to sound reductive in any way, but I know a big part, well, an element of your exploration of this topic is, a, is about questioning whether an image can transmute successfully an experience or an emotion. And I wondered if you feel like the book successfully does that because for me I felt it just I think between the questions and the fact that the images do feel much more personal than the the installation images it came as close as I've ever felt and I I wondered how you felt about that yeah no I don't take that as reductive at all it feels like the opposite um this is something I've spoken about, but it's hard to talk about. I never quite know the right way to talk about it because I love photography and I feel so invested in photography. Photographs obviously are central to my practice would be an understatement. I, I believe in like the power and persuasiveness of, you know, of the photographic image. And at the same time, yeah, it's a really astute question because as I was working on this project in particular, more so than other projects, I was really continually coming up against this, what felt like an invisible wall. I was wanting the photograph so badly to account for this experience that I had had. And I might add that I was working on the piece in between the births of my sons when I was pregnant with my second son. And, and I really only stopped the piece when I was like eight, working on the piece when I was eight and a half months pregnant and sort of could no longer stand very comfortably. So I was really preparing again, um, you know, sort of as mindfully as I could and really in the only way I know how through the research of images for this experience of birth again. And so I was really looking for the images to both describe something that I had already been through and prepare me for this thing that was yet to come and finding that photographs, of course, have their limitations, that there was no photograph that could hold that range of sensations that we were talking about earlier, right? Not just say orgasm and not just say agony, but maybe both of those things and everything in between. And, um, and so I began to feel um, I began to feel like that was a sort of the twin, you know, the twin problem and potential of the work, let's say its drive to picture something that's otherwise so invisible in culture. And at the same time, it's reckoning with the limitations of photography to do so with the limitations of photography, in other words, to account for sensorial feeling for innermost feeling of all kinds did working on 
both the installation and the book, did that have any resolve for you personally in terms of trying to bring about the essence of some of these emotions that you go through during birth? Oh, that's a hard question. Um, And I don't know if I've ever been asked it before. I suppose yes. Um, How could it not? Looking at all of those, all of those different kinds of births and and in some sense, recognizing myself and my body, you know, and my own experience all over the images. I mean, that's, that's validating um, and affirmative and sort of complicates, you know, serves to complicate my own experience. I do think that the most meaningful part of the project for me, however, was not, you know, was not a personal one in the sense that, yes, I was looking for that for myself, but probably the most meaningful thing as we've talked about, was seeing the ways in which other people engaged with those same set of pictures, Um, particularly, I mean, the work, of course, is for everyone, but particularly an older set of women who say were my grandmother's age in their 80s and 90s, who, at least in this country, most likely experienced not just immense sort of shame and privacy around birth, but they themselves had been put in a state of twilight sedation. You know, they themselves didn't remember their own births. Um, You know, they themselves had been instructed to, you know, bind their breasts and, um, you know, and not, and not breastfeed their children. And so for me, there was a kind of, there was a kind of dedicated, intimacy or curiosity about the ways in which, you know, that generation of women encountered and experienced and sort of moved through the work. I would really love to talk about your recent book, which has the best title ever. (laughs) Uh, Notes on Fundamental Joy, Seeking the Elimination of Oppression Through the Social and Political Transformation of the Patriarchy that Otherwise Threatens to Bury Us. And I'm a, I, I'm a huge fan of this book. It, it examines the 70s era feminist lesbian separatist communities. And these communities were so invested in picture making. And the photography in the book is incredible. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you came to the project. Yes, it is a mouthful of a title. <laughs> um, I, I came to the project. Well, I had known about these photographs for a long time. And I mean, since long before I made my birth, which is to say that I knew that these communities were invested in picture making. I knew that there were certain archives that housed those pictures. I knew that there were a lot of women who, or I presumed that there were a lot of women who maybe belonged to or participated, um, you know, in these photo workshops who had these photographs, you know, under their beds or in their closets. Um, And in a lot of ways, making my birth compelled me to think, you know, as we as you were asking about earlier, compelled me to think about um, the ways in which families are made and the potential, let's say, of like matrilineal or matriarchal communities and ways of being and ways of picturing. I mean, all of these were concerns that came from, yes, that came from my birth, but also sort of like the research and the experience that informed it. And so when Printed Matter approached me the following year about making a book together, I knew right away that that was what I wanted to do. Um, But I had no experience working in dedicated archives, um, you know, institutional archives. I've always thought of myself as an artist who 
kind of makes my own ad hoc archives where there are none. And so this was like an inverted prospect of sort of going into the institution. And in this case, the lion's share of those photographs came from an archive called Lesbian Land at the University of Oregon. And so really the research just, um, it was just an enormous learning curve. The research looked really different, felt really different. And again, because I had two very small children and I was still breastfeeding, I was working with um, a student actually at the University of Oregon who was sort of proxy and we were sending images back and forth and back and forth. And um, the book came about slowly in that way. That was one source of multiple sources, multiple institutional archives, but also, as I said, different women um, who are out there who had never shown their photographs and sort of forging, forging those relationships. And it really came from a sort of a central question. If my birth came from this question of, you know, why was there mutinous? You know, why was there no language about birth? The sort of central question of, of notes on fundamental joy was really um, what, what is a world without patriarchy? What does it look like not just to sort of subvert it or work within it, um, but in fact, sort of sidestep it altogether. And that was the question that was sort of central as I, you know, as I collected the images and there was a text that appeared in that book as well. And so sort of all those things came together was to try to keep that question really sort of central and pulsing. I love the sentiment of radical optimism in terms of this book. I'm curious what it was like to work with these different women who had created this work, because I imagine there were some sensitivities around them publishing it. So maybe I can take that first part first and say, however obvious, that was something that I arrived at midway through the project, really thinking about the potential of optimism different than say like being idealistic or being um, somehow having a positive outlook, but really actually having the force of imagination, this, this force that belongs to activists, you know, and artists alike to be able to picture, as you've said, this thing that does not exist. And for women who were growing up in, you know, arguably under a much more paternalistic system you know, with much more paternalistic values than, you know, than our generation, like how, how incredible, how incredible to have mm. that force of imagination. Um, because of course they did believe it possible. They did create it. And I think, you know, I think back to say what feminism was called before it was called feminism and that was women's liberation. And, you know, thinking about that idea of what it means to be invested in liberation struggle. Of course, I won't get into this, but ways in which we see that unfolding now and not just the bravery that that takes, but um, the, and not just the will, but the imagination and the optimism that it is in fact possible and that, that the immense risk, you know, personal risk is, is worthwhile for that reason. And so for me, I was just, I was so moved by that, you know, in encountering those photographs and learning more about that history and, and, and thinking about sort of generational shifts, let's say, in our, you know, in, in our relation to optimism and our relation to imagination when it comes to political will and world building. So that was very much at the center of the book, as you say. In terms of sensitivity of the images, that too was a really kind of paramount concern for us as we went. Um, so many of the photographs are... Um, of women nude or semi-nude, right, in, in these pretty private 
you know, um, environments deliberately secluded. And so who was I then to sort of come in and turn them outward and sort of make a book that, um, you know, that exposed, exposed them and exposed these pictures to the world. And that's a complicated process, of course. And it was a slow process. It was a process of building relationships um, with women who many of the women have passed away. And so, you know, sort of building relationships with their estates or with their archives or when the women were in the cases in which the women were alive and, and still working, you know, sort of building out collaborations and conversations with them. And one example of that is my now dear friend, Carol Newhouse, who was one of the founding members um, of one of the communities that that's pictured women share that's pictured in the book and a photographer herself. She's worked as a social worker her whole life when she's not living in Oregon. And that has become this incredibly meaningful collaboration and relationship in my life. Um, and we're now in the process of working together, um, you know, on an artwork and in a series of extended conversations around sort of curating other projects. And so there's no way really to give, I'm thinking about how to give an <laughs> answer on this that isn't, you know, too elaborative, but it's a complicated question with a complicated answer. And so often the ethics of, of my projects are that way. And so how to proceed in making, you know, in making projects, and of course, this is a question for a lot of artists, in making projects that are complex and nuanced and um, troubling and meaningful that don't hurt people. And that's, it's always a little hard to get the calculus right on that. And I don't always get it right. Um, and that project is no exception. But the, those conversations, particularly with Carol, which has yielded a you know, really important, meaningful relationship for me, um, are one are one strategy or sort of one way to sort of navigate that terrain, I might say. And I also think another one is the your absolute willingness and specific drive to have the conversations around this and not shy away from those complicated conversations, which I think is where many other people can can get into difficult situations when they're kind of almost trying to hide from this complexity. So I think that's just so important. And I, I watched your talk with Carol, which I'll put in the show notes. It's it's so fantastic. Oh, great. She Thank seems, you. Yeah, she's she seems wonderful. great. Yeah, she is really terrific. I'm excited to see what you guys do together. That sounds awesome. I was curious how you feel about feminism right now in relation to art and photography. Well, one thing I could describe is the ways in which I wrestle with it. I really wrestle with the tendencies of contemporary feminism and in a lot of ways identify with what a lot of people I, I would assume would consider to be a more old fashioned or outdated version of second wave feminism, something that I think a lot of people consider to be um, much more essentializing. And in certain ways, I, I definitely agree. I hearkened earlier to, you know, to this term women's liberation. And that's something that I think about a lot. And that is the thing that I really hold, hold on to and I'm interested in from generations past, which is, um, which is this question of sort of not how to um, assimilate, not how to amass capitalist, you know, power um, and currency, but really how to think about breaking with the system altogether, um, really understanding in my mind 
that the values of feminism and the values of capitalism are not compatible. We can't occupy both terms at once. And so my feminism, um, you know, some people might, some people might identify this as a more radical kind of feminism. Um, I talked in that talk that you attended about sort of rejecting consumerist and corporate feminism, even what some people might call liberal feminism. And I wrestle with that in my own life, the ways in which I've benefited from those things, the ways in which they have served me and made me more comfortable and sort of what it means to at once benefit from them and also sort of reject them ideologically. And so this is where I say it's like a little, it's a little difficult to try to unpack period, much less in a couple minutes, but it is, it's important, I think, to, um, yeah, to be honest with, with ourselves about our own contradictory impulses um, in terms of this question of how that transmutes into contemporary art and photography, it's a really interesting question. And I think there's, of course, more than one way to contend with it. Um, you know, one thing to think about, of course, in addition to what we represent and how we represent it is, um, you know, is where it lives in the world and what systems, larger systems we want to participate in. So this isn't news, but... Where do we show our art? Do we sell it? If so, to whom and for how much? I mean, these are questions that um, I think that we all need to reckon with. They, you know, they inform how we live our lives. Again, this question of who benefits um, and sort of, you know, whose values prevail. Let's say I'm speaking in generalities because um, because of the time, but I think that there there are complicated questions and. And they really, they drive my practice and I try and my life. And I try, as you said earlier, to really be kind of, um, to be honest with myself and to raise the questions wherever I can, um, you know, with my students. You know, one of the things that we start out saying is, um, you know, not just like, are you a feminist? Are you not a feminist? But what is the patriarchy, right? Like, what is, how do we name it? And beyond that, can we imagine a world outside of it? And so for me, if you're just coming to these questions as an artist or an educator, I think these are really sort of important questions to reckon with and to be sort of continually practicing. Not that one can ever necessarily resolve them, but like, what does it mean to bring those to the table, not with just with yourself, but with your community? To finish up, I wanted to ask you the same question that I ask everyone at the end of the show, and that's what matters more to you, the experience of making the work or the final work? Oh, well, for me, those are the same thing. <laughs> so that's easy enough to answer. I don't really distinguish between sort of the feeling of being in the studio and collecting images and researching images and moving them around on the wall from, you know, how it lives inside of a gallery or a museum space or a billboard space or, you know, an online space. For me, in fact, the closer that those can come to each other, you know, if they can collapse sort of into each other, all of the better, you know, sometimes that's more or less successful, but the sort of the joy and the struggle, let's say, comes in bringing the process and the product as close together as possible. I literally cannot believe that I did not anticipate you would say that. <laughs> because it, now I feel stupid. Like that, obviously you're the only person who's ever said that. <laughs> That's such, that was the best answer ever. I literally, I was like, of course, oh, of course. Well, you need not, you need not go stupid. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, you know, it's this totally particular way of working. And, um, 
Yeah, I mean, to, to the title of your podcast, it's a, it's a very messy truth. Thanks for listening to The Messy Truth. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes. Theme music is changed by Judd Greenstein from the album Awake and design is by Ruby White. You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at Jem Fletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at jemfletcher.com. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts.